We uh, smoked a brisket yesterday. Thank you, Mike and Gabriel, for your help. We did it for the purpose of having a sermon illustration today. Uh, Ten and a half hours on smoke, two hours of resting in a cooler, and then we served it. This is the fifth uh, brisket that I've ever done on my own. Smoking a brisket is both a science and it's an art. There's rules to uh, smoking a brisket. There's, there's rules to mastering it. There are temperatures, which you got to hit and make consistent. There's, there's meat temperatures that you don't want to go above or you don't want to serve below. There, um, there, there is airflow that really matters with the brisket. There's a science to airflow and creating clean smoke. There's a heat fluctuations. If you have too much heat fluctuation, it, it messes up your cook. And so that's why it's long and slow and it needs to be consistent. That is science. That is, those are rules. It makes sense. And, and somebody did the math for us so we don't have to necessarily figure out the math as we go. There's trimming the bad parts of the meat. You take the stuff that nobody wants so you don't cut a piece of meat and you get a chunk of something nobody wants. And so that's, that's a science, right? There, there's things to know and there's things to not know. There's parts of a cow you don't want to eat and there's parts of a cow that you do want to eat, right? There's, uh, there's, 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 there's uh, uh, understanding that when you cook and you take it off of the heat, you don't serve it right away because there's something happening scientifically. I don't know what it is, but fat renders in a particular way when you let it rest, right? And I don't know what the scientific term is for it, but it's science, right? It's it's, it's a science. There, there's a reason why you do these things. And if you don't follow these rules, uh, you just don't have a good cook. But then there's also the art. Every fire is different. Uh, every day is different. Uh, every, every, um, every piece of wood that you put in the fire is a, is, is a unique piece of wood. It burns a little bit differently. It's consistent, but it's also unique. They're t- cut to different sizes. They burn for for longer than others, some burn shorter, some are bigger, some are smaller, some are drier than others. Every piece of meat is different in a brisket. I've nudged five now, and none of them have come out the exact same because every cut of meat is so different. And, and you figure out, like, is it, is it me? Is it the process? Is it the meat? I'm trying to figure that out. And, and uh, that's the art of the whole thing. Weather's a factor. We sat outside in 30 degrees all day in the beating sun, and it sucked. But that has an impact on the heat of the barrel, right? It changes it. If you, if you cook in the winter or you cook in the rain, then um, the barrel doesn't keep the heat the same. And so there's, there's an art to playing with shade and there's an art to playing with the elements and, uh, and, and you have to adapt. And so there's, there's rules. Do this, do it for this long. It's this big, so this many hours on. And, and, and then there's, there's the art of it all. And, uh, and the art is, uh, well, that's what you learn with experience. And a true pit master, I wouldn't consider myself a pit master. I wouldn't be so forward. But a true pit master, you need both generational wisdom and you need uh, experience, right? And that's cooking with anything. It's like following a recipe. You know, anyone can follow a recipe, but you can tell the difference between someone who just follows recipe and someone who knows how to cook, Right? And, uh, and there's a science to it, but there's also an art to it. So to become a master, you need both generational wisdom and experience over time. That is practice. Or you can buy a pellet-fed smoker. I wouldn't do that. 
Unless all you want is, cons- is to consume meat. Maybe, maybe there's a reason for it. Maybe some people smoke meat just for the sake of eating smoked meat. Maybe. And if that's you, then I understand. And you got a couple grand, go buy yourself a pellet, fed smoker, and eat your smoked meat and call yourself someone who smokes meat. <laughs> Smoking a brisket is... Um, is way less about the result, because the result is hit and miss, but it's, uh, it's way more about the process, and it's way more about the fight. It's way more about taming a fire for 11 hours straight, right? And that's what the boys learned yesterday. A couple boys came with me for the first time and smoked a brisket, and, and it's way more about the fun of fighting fire for 11 hours straight, because that's what you're doing, and you're managing it nonstop for the whole time. It's about masterfully following somebody's wisdom and then expressing your own creativity in your setup and in your process. It's about identifying with the craft. That's why I, I like to do it. There's something to identify with the craft. If, if you have a pellet-fed grill, you, you can say you smoke meat, but, and I guess you do to an extent, but, but you don't really understand because the machine's doing all the work, right? But there's something so human about being a part of fighting a fire for 11 hours, and you can't take your eyes off it. If you have a pellet-fed grill, you can go to the grocery store and leave it. You sit inside air conditioning and watch golf all day. You sit on Instagram and scroll mindlessly for seven hours, and then, bing, you've got meat to eat, right? There's nothing in the process you just stick it on and it's ready for you. You might as well buy it at the restaurant. But that's beside the point. I'm not taking shots here. I do want to illustrate something. I want to illustrate something. It's the art and the craft of smoking meat, truly smoking meat, that, um, that people find identity in and they find meaning in. Like that's why I've, I did it a few a month ago and I did it again. And after, the, after a month ago, I was like, man, I'm exhausted. I won't do that for another year. And then I wanted to do it again. I craved doing again. There's, there's something more than just eating the meat that you're craving, right? And I think, I think what I'm craving is kind of the meaning and the identity that comes from mostly the process, not so much um, the result. It's the imitation of those who have gone before who have posted high-quality videos on YouTube, thank you, YouTube stars, that I can find a connection with. And then it's um, considering the roots of cooking, right? And while you're doing this, and you're doing this all day, you're starting to think like, oh, wait a sec, this is how everyone in human history has ever done it except for us, right, in the last 50 or 100 years. Like, this was the process. Fire and put meat on it and manage a fire and cook it until it's done, right? We've got all these tools and all this technology that kind of takes us away from it, and there's, there's almost something human about doing it. There's something, something where you're, like, connecting with your ancestral roots or something. I don't know. Do suburbanites even say that? We don't even say that. But there's something there. There's something there. And the end product, as good as it is, it's not, um, it's not where you find the meaning. It's not where you find the joy. The joy's in the fight, right, boys? Would you say that? The joy was in the fight all day. The joy was in the community. The joy was in the suffering and in the wrestling and the heat and the smoky eyes and the, you know, damaged shoulder blade at the end and the lifting and the moving and the chopping of wood. The meaning was found 
in the exchange of conversation and the, the joy between people doing it together and, and, and the bond that's created from, from doing that together. The meaning was, um, was, was, for the community, was formed by the process and the me- people we met along the way and the jokes that we told. We, we met like 100 people yesterday. It was crazy just sitting out there. So this is where the meaning comes from. It, was com- it came from, from doing something with community for community and then serving it to community to your family, right? And everyone eating together. That's, so there's meaning in it. Am I overdoing this? <laughs> Am I overselling it a little bit? Not at all, okay. Today, um, we're going to talk about mimesis and poiesis and how they connect to self-denial and self-fulfillment. Weird transition, right? We've been talking here at Southside for the whole summer. We've been talking about becoming a non-anxious presence. And what we mean by that is, um, well, what we mean is that we all seem to be more anxious than our parents were at our age, right? And our kids are more anxious than we were at their age. And our teenagers are more anxious than, than, than we were when we were teenagers. And, um, and that is not just, um, that, that is not arbitrary. It's, it is not made up. It is not felt experience. It's not like some people are like, wow, kid, every kid has anxiety. And it's like, no, kids are just whinier today. It's like, no, they actually statistically are dealing with more anxiety than you did at their age, right? If you're a grandparent, it's a significant difference between your grandkids and you and the the anxiety that you felt when you were a teenager, right? And then we're all experiencing it too. Like, I don't know if you've been keeping track of how you feel the last 10 years, but I have, I've been trying to, not perfectly, but I do feel more angst than I did 10 years ago. And there's nothing to do with responsibility and having kids and a family to feed and bills to pay. There's something like I can't get away from looking at Instagram all day and looking at ads all day. And I can't get away from constantly second guessing everything. And I don't have any peace and I'm, I'm stressed all the time. And there's a hundred things I feel like I'm supposed to do. And then I never get any of them done. I, I don't know how you feel, but I feel this way all the time. I'm more anxious than I've ever been. And it feels like that's just growing and growing and growing. And what we've been saying through the series is we've been saying, <coughs> Jesus lived, so if Jesus, if Jesus is the, like was and is the king of the universe, like if he is God incarnate, if, if that's who he was and he is today, because if he was that, then he is that. So if that's true, and then the God of the universe who came at a certain time to save the world of all of their brokenness and sin, you think the, most res- like the, the greatest responsibility ever, and the God of the universe who knows everything and knows everyone's pain and everyone's suffering and everyone's brokenness and everyone's stresses, you would think that he would, he would do this with a lot of anxiety. Like, is this going to work? Or there's so much to do. Like, if you think there's a lot to do in the world, think about the God of the universe, Right? If you think you've got a lot to take care of and handle and process, think of the God of the universe, right? So if all this is true, then we would think maybe the God of the universe who comes would be like crazy anxious every second. He's doing something nonstop, right? But the story we have in the Gospels is we have the God of the universe coming and spending three years, not 30, not 60, three years ministering to people. And then when we watch his lifestyle, the way he walked and the way he went from place to place, when you read about it and you learn about it, was very peaceful. 
it was very non-anxious. It was very much like, hey, there's a problem, guys, and I'm going to fix it. But, but it wasn't frantic, right? And you're not the savior of the universe, but you're frantic. I don't know about you. I'm frantic all the time. And so we've been processing, like, is there something wrong with us or is there something wrong with us in this unique cultural context and season that we're in where we are feeling more and more anxious every day? And what, what are those things? What's contributing to that? And does the life of Jesus and the model of Jesus have something to offer us, right? Like if we, if we are Christians and we follow the ways of Jesus, that's what we say Christians are. They're people who look at Jesus and go, I'm going to live like that guy because he seemed to do some things really well. And if he's God, he's worth following and so if, if we're Christians and we follow the ways of Jesus, maybe following the ways of Jesus will, um, will help relieve us of some of the anxiety that we're feeling, that everyone around us in a secular environment like this is also feeling. So that's what we've been doing, and we've been going through this, this, this we've been tracking with this. We started talking about deceptive ideas, disordered desires, and sinful societies. What we said is there's deceptive ideas, and that's the language of Satan in the Bible. The language of Satan and demons is always associated with like bad ideas, like half-truths or things that, that aren't fully true, right? And when deceptive ideas, they lead to disordered desires in our own heart. So we take in a deceptive idea, we learn something or we think something or we question something that may not be true or, or we're just told, hey, think this way. Like this product's going to make you feel this. And you go, okay, I guess that product's going to make me feel this. And then what it does, it disorders our desires. All of a sudden we have a desire for something we didn't have before because of a deceptive idea. And then, so we spend some time talking about disordered desires and what happens with the Christian life is, is, is basically a lifelong process of reordering our desires and putting our kind of our animalistic desires uh, to feed our flesh as, as kind of lower, blow, lower than our, than our God-given image-bearing desires to serve God, to love people, to be generous, to be kind, all that kind of stuff. That's what we talked about. And, but what happens if deceptive ideas lead to disordered desires, at least in sinful societies, at least the societies that are built on these deceptive ideas and disordered desires, right? And then we all just live in the mix of it. So that's what we've been talking about. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about a lie that's permeated society at such a deep level, and it's shaped culture around us in a profound way. Uh, in his book, we're not going to talk about the specific, this specific lie, but in his book, um, a guy named uh, Carl Truman, he wrote The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a really good book. It's, uh, it's, it's, it started out addressing the question, he wanted to address the question, why is it today that it is normative to hear somebody say the statement, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body? Like, we all hear that and we go, well, yeah, everybody, that, that, that's, that's a thing, right? And we hear, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, and we think it's a thing, right? And, he's, and, and what he's saying is historically it's not a thing. Like historically... And even cross-culturally, like outside of the Western context, people hear that and they go, what are you talking about? Like, what does that even mean? But here in the West, in the 21st century modern West, we hear that and we go, that's a normal thing, a man trapped in a woman's body. And so he's wrestling with, throughout the book, he's wrestling with like, wh how did we get to a point where something 50 years ago, even 30 years ago, would seem so like out of the ordinary, it would seem like nobody would... So you have someone who hears somebody say that, and you can be like, okay, you struggle with gender dysphoria, and there's very few of you, but it's not normal, it's not common, and it's not something to affirm. And then in just like the span of a generation, it's affirmed, right, here in the West. And that's not, he does take a position on what he thinks about that, 
But I'm not bringing that up to suggest that we're talking about the position on that necessarily. But what he does is he starts to trace back more than just that particular issue. He starts to trace back, like, how did we get to a point where we actually think that what's more real is how we feel than our physical body, right? That's kind of the idea. And so that's kind of the, where, where he kind of goes in, um, in the book. And it's, it's, it's an interesting read, and, and I'm in the middle of it. But um, one of the things that we're going to pull from it, because I found it really interesting, is, um, is this topic of mimesis and poiesis. And you've probably never heard those words before. I never heard of them until we started looking into it. Mimesis, poiesis, or mimetic and poetic. A mimesis, what mimesis is. So when it comes to the topic of truth and meaning and purpose... Mimetic thinkers, they see the world as somewhere to find meaning within, right? So, so if, if you're mimetic in your bent of thinking, you see the world around you, including yourself within the world, as m- that there's meaning to be found somewhere here. It's intrinsic to it. It is objective within it. And, and my role as the individual is to find the meaning, to pursue the meaning to, um, to find the meaning that already exists within it, that it was, that was created within it, or, or even if you don't use the language of created within it, because a lot of cultures and societies that are mimetic may not be Judeo-Christian, but, but they believe it's there to be found, right? Does that make sense? So meaning and truth and purpose is somewhere to be found, and, and your job as a self is to go find it, because it's there to be found and discovered. Okay, that's what it means to be mimetic thinking in regards to purpose, truth, and meaning. The word mimetic comes from the word, um, well, it's the same root word as mime, right? It's to mimic. It's the same root word, to mimic. And so meaning and purpose is found when you are mimicking that which is meaningful and purposeful, right? Does that make sense? It's, it's, it's discovered and it's felt and it's experienced when you are m- m- mimicking what those who have gone before have modeled to be meaningful and purposeful and truthful. So that's what it means. For example, um, a pit master. I'm a pit master because my father, my father wasn't a pit master. But, but for, for the example, to keep the analogy going, I'm the pit master because my father was a pit master and because his father was a pit master. And, and our family are pit masters. That's who we are. And I discover my meaning when I, when I um, find myself in the context of my family and I, and I continue the the lineage of finding meaning in this thing. So that's why I'm a doctor, my dad was a doctor, my dad's dad was a doctor, because our family finds meaning in, in, um, in being doctors, and that's who we are. Right? That's to, to be mimetic is to, to say, like, it's, it's there, and it's, it's, to be, it's to be told to me. It's to be passed down to me. In mimetic societies, there's social hierarchy. You kind of know your place, and it's strongly enforced. And in, in, in some intense ones, like the Indian caste system, for example, or, or a, a soft example in the West is the royal family, right? How shocked was everyone to hear Harry and Meghan? Is it Harry and Meghan? Who keeps track of this stuff anymore? What a bad example. But Harry and Meghan leaving the royal family, right? Like, you know, so you don't do that. You're the royal family. Why? Because you were born into the royal family. It is what it is. This, you find meaning... And an identity when you conform to the tribe, when you conform to the community, when you conform to what religion says you are. 
You find meaning and purpose when you know your role in society and you conform to it. So that's mimetic thinking. Sounds, even as Westerners, I don't know about you, but it even sounds slightly offensive to say, right? Know your place, right? Like, oof, intense. Well, the other side of it is poesis. Poesis. Um, This word means to make or to bring into existence from nothing, that which didn't exist. A quote from the book says, um, uh, in a poetic culture, not poetic like poets, but poetic culture, transcendent purpose collapses into the imminent and given purpose collapses into any purpose I choose to create or decide for myself. Human nature might say, becomes something individuals or societies invent for themselves. So it's not passed on. It doesn't, it's not there to be found. It is something that we create for ourselves. Meaning and purpose and truth is something that you must create. It's from within. It is something that you birth individually and uniquely. And then you express yourself in the world around you from that unique creation of the self. And in that situation, in, that, in a society built on this way of thinking, identity and meaning and truth uh, is not found in self-denial, but it's, self, it's found in self-fulfillment. It's, it's not found in conformity to a way things are and your role in it, right? It's found in expression of your unique individual self in this oyster box of a world or whatever, right? That's the idea. I feel like I identify with cats. I wear cat things. I meow when I go to school. I even bring my, little, my litter box to school with me, and a teacher can't tell me what to do. I use that example because my wife and I read an article like a week ago, where, and, and we laugh. Seriously, kids are showing up to school with litter boxes identifying as cats, and teachers are not telling them no, right? And I don't say that to get a quick laugh. This is, to, this is what it means to be to the extreme. I, I, this is who I am. This is my identity. I have found my true self through self-fulfillment and through a pursuit of a very individualistic pursuit of what I think it means to be me. And then I express myself to the world and nobody can tell me otherwise, right? Nobody can tell you no. I'm going to use a personal example. Don't be offended by this because it's personal, right? I posted on Instagram yesterday. I posted, uh, I'm out back with my boys about to serve up a fat brisky for at Southside Church, Right? Some of the teenagers understand what I'm saying. You might be like, what in the world are you saying? <laughs> I was just saying, like, it's a fat, like a big piece of fatty brisket, and I'm excited to serve it. And they use the language fat brisky. And I got a warning on my Instagram. It said, if you, uh, people have posted things that are like this in nature in the past have had their posts removed. <laughs> and it said, do you want to share anyway? Right? And you're like, what in the world is the problem with that? Other than your terrible grammar and sounding like a moron, right? (laughs) What would be wrong with that, right? The word fat, using the word fat, right? That was a problem. Because we can't, we can't, we can't say that anymore. We can talk about it. Now, I was at, and don't be hurt by this, or nobody has to say, no, you're not. As a relatively overweight person, 
like I can identify as fat, it, it would describe the nature of my bodily condition. I'm not offended by that. I'm not hurt by that. But there's a lot of people who they just want to, they don't identify as that. And so they don't want to be labeled that, right? It's who I am and it's how I express myself that matters and you need to affirm that. I'm not unhealthy. I'm not overweight. You can't call me that. That's not right. That's not true. You can't define me as that. I am who I am and I'm an individual self and I'm expressing myself in the world and that needs to be affirmed by everybody. That's, that's, so that's, that's the nature of a poetic cultural um, ideology, right? Uh, that basis for meaning. Does that make sense? Are you seeing the difference? One is, no, you are objectively, like according to the science, 60 pounds overweight, right? And you need to conform to that reality. That label exists on you because you, you live in that reality. The meaning is found of that word within the culture. And the other is, no, 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 no. It's from within. I create it. I determine it. Truman would say that we've gone through this massive shift in Western culture over the last quite a few years. And uh, he would say that the reason is, for te- is, is mostly technology. He would suggest that the reason is uh, it's a technological shift that we've gone through that has, has actually shaped this. Uh, the reality is like the only people in ancient cultures who could um, pursue their own identity through self-fulfilling behaviors and express themselves freely and expect everyone to conform to their unique expression, the only people who got to do that were the elites, right? The extremely wealthy, the ones who had power, the ones at the top. The rest of us had to smoke brisket for 12 hours to feed our family, right? That, that was the reality. We didn't have the privilege of self-expression and pursuing self-fulfillment. It was back then. We had to work the fields. Your, your dad, if he was most likely, your, your great-grandfather was a farmer, most likely, and and the reason they had lots of kids was so that they could work the farm. Not because they had children as a means to, um, for self-fulfillment or an expression of themselves as a father. You had children. It was a natural byproduct of being married, and it's the way God created it, and God said, be fruitful and multiply, and it's an act of worship to God. All that's good. You had children to work the farm, right? <laughs> to pick the weeds, right? To pick the weeds, right? That's, you know, you needed that to survive, and when I don't say that lightly, we don't get that. But that's what most people have lived with, right? They need to survive. Now, with the technological shift where we no longer are at the will of the environment to survive, we can control the environment. There are some, somebody, somebody has cows and then somebody cuts them. I don't even know. Someone cuts them up. I go to the, go to the store and buy them, you know? I've got money to do that. So I just go to, I don't know how it all works, but because of technological advances now, very few of us are actually in touch with the reality of nature. And even those whose role it is to raise sheep and cattle and grow crops, they can control it. And so what happened with the technological shift is we started to be able to control our destiny in a different way. Beforehand, we were at the will of rain and sun, and you couldn't control it. And now we can control all these elements what that also means is we can start to control, we feel like we can control ourselves in some kind of way, our identity. We're no longer bound to the trappings of conforming to our environment, to those around us. We have freedom. Now you can see the pitfalls and the benefits of both. The pitfalls of a, a mimetic worldview 
is, um, well, it's quite obvious. You stay in your place. You stay in your place. And who gets to say that? Usually the people with power. And they keep you down, right? They want to keep you down to their advantage. So, so, there, so the pitfalls, or the potential pitfall, is the tyranny of oppression, right? You, you don't get to be an engineer. You have to be a doctor, right? You don't get to be a, you don't get to work. You have to stay home, right? That's, that's the idea, right? It's, and, and the tyranny of it is oppression. The, the, bad I, the, the bad of it can be that somebody controls your life and you have no control over it and no freedom, right? That could be the oppression. Now, the benefit of it is very, very clear. You know your place and you live within it. And I don't know about you, but I'm learning more and more and more that I don't want to make decisions. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, just, I don't, it's so exhausting. There's so many options. And like, I just want to go to a restaurant and say, whatever's best on your menu, just give me, you know? Don't make me decide this is exhausting. There's a benefit to it. And the benefit also is meaning. You know exactly where you stand. You're not questioning it. You're not walking to a social setting questioning where you stand. You know where you stand. You're about here on the social hierarchy. Gabriel, you're here on the social hierarchy. I am here on the social hierarchy. And you know it. And we talk about it. And we all know it. There's no mystery. You don't think we're equals, right? You know, right? And you come in, you don't think about it. You just know your place. So there's a benefit to that. Well, there's also a tyranny and oppression to it, right? And you can understand why people would really want a different way. What we're living in now is a poetic culture. And we're just learning about the tyranny of it. We've seen the tyranny of it by people, a few people in power and elitists. But now what we're seeing is the tyranny of it when we all feel total freedom and equality for self-expression and self-fulfillment. We're all experiencing that. The blessing of it is equality, right? And that's a good thing. Equality is a good thing. That's the blessing. The tyranny of it is that when I go to a restaurant and there's a million things on the menu, I cannot decide what to eat. We've talked about this. It's hard. It's exhausting. I'm anxious. The tyranny of it is the tyranny of choice. You see that? If it's all up to you and it's, and it's left to you to decide for yourself, to figure out for yourself, well, there's an infinite amount of yous you could be, right? Like one day you could do this and the next day you could be another dude who looks different, sounds different, dresses different, speaks different, does something else for a job. And it might be as awesome. And then another day you might see an ad on Facebook you might think, that's awesome, I want to do that. And I want to be that. The tyranny of it is choice, an infinite choice. And what that creates is anxiety. It creates anxiety. Do you feel anxiety when you know what you have to do? You don't. You feel anxiety when you don't know, or you're unsure, or there's like seven options. Do you feel anxiety when you and your wife have predetermined what to watch on Netflix that night? You, you spoke about it a week ago, and you said, next Saturday, we're watching this movie. Do you feel any anxiety? You, do you ever fight? No, it's awesome, right? It's when you show up and you sit on the couch. Oh, what do we watch? No, 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 no. What about, uh, no. Then you fight. <laughs> Little Johnny can be whoever he wants if he puts his mind to it. Little Johnny, he's watching Instagram ads all day, telling him to be a million different things. Do you realize that? Your kids. You, kid, be whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Become whoever you want. 
your poor kids are being told to become a thousand different things. It's not one thing, right? It's a thousand different things a day. They're exhausted. They don't want to, they don't know if they should become a doctor or an engineer or a stay-at-home mom or a bus driver. Well, most of them don't want to be a bus driver. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> that was funny, right? <laughs> they, don't, they don't know. They're exhausted. They don't wear. Are Crocs cool? Are they not cool? It changes every three months, right? Mike, you're consistent. But for the rest of us, we don't know. They're becoming uncool again. It's exhausting. Little Johnny, he jumps from activity to activity, learn skill to learn skill, career path to career path. He goes to school for one major, then switches to another major, and switches to another major, and switches to another, and then he never uses any of them, right? That's the norm. It's the norm. That's not the odd person who's struggling. That is the norm. We're exhausted and anxious because of choice. And if little Johnny's family, he just was like, if dad was like, hey, I'm an electrician, you're an electrician, we're all going to be electricians, that's what we're doing. He might at some point resent being an electrician, especially when he gets electrocuted for the first time, right? <laughs> but after that, you know, he might just embrace it and own it. Just know who he is and stick with it. And guess what also gets to happen? Dad gets to pass on his wisdom. Because dad can't pass on the wisdom of being a doctor because dad's an electrician. But dad gets to pass on the wisdom of being an electrician. If Johnny's like, I'm going to be an electrician, my dad's an electrician. Well, you can start learning and passing on that wisdom and passing things down. He starts to learn meaning and knowing his place and understanding it and owning it for what it is. It is a lie that we can be anything we want, wherever we want, whenever we want. That doesn't exist. But that's the option. That's why we're anxious. We're anxious all the time. John Mark Homer, he talks about self-denial and self-fulfillment. And uh, it's connected to the stuff that we've been talking about in, um, in the Live No Lies content. Christianity itself is mimetic in nature. Christianity, Christian faith, is mimetic in nature. There's no way around it. In Christianity, we are all one in Christ. And Paul makes it very clear in Christianity, we are all equal. Galatians 5, men or female, slave or free man, rich or poor, um, Jew or Gentile, we are all equal. So that's the biblical, that's the gospel, right? We're all equal. We're all one in Christ, right? Equality is what we want. So the tyranny of oppression doesn't have a grip on us because we understand in the eyes of God we're all equal. But, Within Christianity is the belief in a creator who made all things, including you, and he made you with a purpose. Within Christianity, there is a reason and purpose for the creation. And Christianity, and its pursuit, is finding that truth and that meaning, external of ourselves. It's not something that we just create. The meaning and the truth in a Christian worldview is external, and it starts with God and his purposes and his intentions. In Matthew 16, 24 to 26, this is this. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? Again, in Matthew 10, 37 to 39, he says, Anyone who loves their father and mother more than me isn't worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me isn't worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will find it. The call by Jesus to follow him is an example of self-denial. It's actually a lifestyle of 
self-denial. It's a calling of self-denial to living in his ways instead of your own. It's a call to deny the passions of the flesh, to ignore the lies of Satan, to fight against the patterns of this world and be transformed into his likeness by the renewing of your mind for the purpose in which he preordained and predetermined for you to have. It's mimetic in nature. Meaning, in a Christian worldview, in a Christian faith, is found in dying to yourself. It's found in living in accordance with a way things are. It's living the purpose that was preordained for you. That's what it means to be a Christian. And you have two options. You kind of have two options when it comes in your face with Christianity. You can deny yourself, or you can deny, you can deny Jesus and you can follow yourself. Or you can deny yourself and you can follow Jesus. Those are your options. If you deny Jesus and follow yourself, then you can put your desires on the throne. You can reorder the desires in whichever way you think is best. You can make getting what you want the ultimate authority of your life and the driving motivation of your life. You can do that. That is your choice. No one's telling you you have to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means to crucify our desires and our flesh and tap into our deeper desire for God and himself and his ways. Andy Stanley, he said it like this at the Global Leadership Summit this week. He said, you get to choose to follow Jesus. You don't get to choose what it looks like to follow Jesus. You get to choose what it, you could choose to follow Jesus, and no one's holding a gun to your head, right? At least I'm not. But you don't get to choose what it means to follow Jesus. You don't get to choose what it looks like to follow Jesus. You don't get to choose what, it, what you act like if you follow Jesus, or what following Jesus feels like or the meaning of it. You don't get to choose that. You just get to choose if you follow Jesus. And that is something that we, ourselves, have to choose. And it's not a one-time choice. We know that. It's a one-time choice, but it's also a daily choice. And we wrestle, particularly in a culture, where we understand that for people who are here with a Christian background, who, believe, who have be- believe in Jesus, they've made a choice to follow Jesus. You wrestle with the anxiety even more because you're wrestling between two worlds. You're wrestling between the world, understanding that, no, wait a sec, I'm called to something. And then you're wrestling in a world and a culture that's telling you, no, 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 no. Do it for yourself. And then what ends up happening in, in, in the church is we have this weird, this weird paganism almost, like this weird overlap of like, well, we follow Jesus, but it's all about our own unique expression of what following Jesus looks like. You know, that doesn't work either, right? We're going to talk a little bit more about this next week, and we're going to ask the question, why is it We've heard this before, but why does it feel so hard to do, and why does it feel like it's getting harder and harder and harder to actually deny ourselves and follow Jesus, to crucify the desires of our flesh and to tap into the deeper, deeper desire for God? Why does it feel harder and harder and harder to just go, that's what Christians do, so that's what we're going to do? We're going to talk about that next week. But for this morning, as we head into communion, I invite you to process for yourself where meaning may be found in your life. And I want to ask you yourself, wh- what's the cost of it? I want to ask you to ask yourself, what are the most meaningful parts of my life? And what does it require? And then consider, consider that you may be, well, consider that this pursuit of self-fulfillment in your life, it's all around you. Consider, um, consider how it's impacting you. Consider Consider what parts of your Christian walk you're unwilling to let go because you are 
convinced by deceptive ideas like pursue your own passions and pursue self-fulfillment and consider how they're actually might be impacting you. I don't know what it is for you. I know that, um, I know that we all wrestle with different things. I know that we all, we, all, we all wrestle with generosity, but we all wrestle with wanting another thing and buying another thing and buying a beer house and upgrading on something. We all wrestle with that. I get it. I know that we all wrestle with, man, we all wrestle with wanting to spend time with God, but then we spend 10 hours smoking a brisket instead. You know what I mean? We all wrestle with, um, we all wrestle with this, 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 this need to, to go to work to find some sort of self-fulfillment, but also to spend quality time and, and good time with our family and with our church family. We all wrestle with, we all wrestle with, um, we all wrestle with praying, right? We all wrestle with, man, we wrestle with like spending time in, in prayer and then spending time on every other thing that we feel like we have to get done in order to have a meaningful life. We all wrestle with that. But what I do know is true is that you have something unique for you that is a serious issue for you. It's a serious challenge for you. And maybe the question for communion today is, um, is what does it look like to deny myself this week? What do I have to deny myself of this week? If following Jesus is a self-denial, what is it that I, this week, need to look at and go, man, I'm not, I haven't been willing to, I haven't been willing to deny myself of that one. That, I like that pleasure. I like that desire. And I like that fulfillment. And I know Jesus is not about that. He's not cool with it. He's not into it. He's, he's like anti that. Following Jesus means not doing that. I know that, but that, I like that one. Asking yourself that question during communion. What is that? And, uh, and maybe taking today in communion as an opportunity to offer that to God in love and in trust that his ways are better than our ways and that we're going to find true meaning and purpose in our pursuit of his ways. Let me pray. And then we're going to invite Pastor Ian up. Lord Jesus, it, um, sometimes when we talk about it, it feels uh, like it feels tangible and then it feels so insurmountable, the challenge that we're facing all the time of, um, of like truly pursuing you and following you and following in your ways and then, and then doing it in such a way that doesn't make us feel so disconnected from our culture and from our society and from the world that we're living in. But, but also seeing it for what it is and understanding what's going on ideologically and philosophically and culturally, having an understanding of it gives us power. It helps us understand our kids. It helps us understand our friends who are wrestling. It helps us understand ourselves. It helps us understand our parents and for their generation and, and, and why they sometimes say, just do what I said because I said it. You know? It helps us do that, Lord, and that's... Um, well, honestly, God, it's a gift from you to be able to um, sit in spaces and think about it and process it so that we have some ability to overcome it. Lord Jesus, we, we trust what we do. We trust that you're the, you're the king of the universe and that you're worthy of all of our praise and that you're worthy of all of our lives and you're worthy of denying ourselves of everything for you 